When you speak of your faith in Christ, who do people see? Do they see you? Do they see your great accomplishments? Or do they see Christ? You know, when you have an opportunity to, to, to tell someone about your Savior, to tell someone about your faith, to relate to them how Jesus Christ has saved you and is changing you, do they actually get to see Him? Or do they just see you? I want you to look with me at John chapter 3 this morning, beginning in verse 22. John chapter 3 and verse 22. Here we, here we are at the end of John 3. And here we see the witness of John the Baptist for, for the last time in the Apostle John's Gospel. And what I want you to see today is what the Apostle John makes clear about John the Baptist. And it's actually what John the Baptist makes clear about Jesus. It's plain in the text before us this morning that John the Baptist was calling out to all who would listen, calling out the name of Jesus Christ to all who would listen, that Jesus Christ is superior. Jesus Christ is superior to all others. Jesus Christ is to be exalted and honored above all others. I want to begin in verse 22. We're going to read through the end of the chapter this morning, John chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. Follow along. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Pause right there for a moment. I want you to note here that it sounds like Jesus is doing the baptizing. But if you've read chapter 4, you know that right at the beginning of chapter 4, it's actually his disciples who were with him who were baptizing. We'll see that made clear in verse 2 of chapter 4 when we get there. Note, too, that John was also baptizing. And as a result of this, this raised some concern in the minds of John's disciples. Verse 25 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, wit bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
And verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard you, yet yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the concern that was raised as a result of some seeing Jesus' disciples baptizing and then John the Baptist also baptizing? Do you see the, you see maybe a bit of uh, rivalry going on here? Maybe a bit of jealousy? Jesus is with his disciples and they are baptizing and some of John's disciples see this and bring this concern to John's. Seen in verse 26, they say, Rabbi, to John the Baptist, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. It's almost like they can't hear themselves speaking when they say, to whom you bore witness. There's like, look, they're going to him. They're, they're being baptized by by him and his disciples. You know, a little competitiveness in the right context might be a good thing. A little competitivism, uh, competitiveness in the right context uh, might be a good thing. I, I would say we need to be cautious about it, though. I, I remember um, vaguely as a youngster, and maybe some of you remember these kinds of things too, uh, growing up in a church, um, being part of Sunday school contest. Ever? You ever part of a Sunday school contest? Years ago, years ago, see, it used to be that churches would use a Sunday school contest. Maybe a couple of uh, churches of like faith in the same community would challenge each other to see how many people they could have in Sunday school on a given Sunday or in a given series of Sundays. And uh, whoever had the most people was the winner. And I suppose a, a contest like that, a little bit of rivalry like that, in the right context, for the right purpose, could be a good thing. But as we look at the text this morning, it seems like the disciples of John are being taken over with a bit of jealousy, with a little bit of competitiveness that's not healthy. We need to beware, I think, beware that the devil would just love to get John's disciples and Jesus' followers and the church today completely sidetracked with a competitive kind of jealousy that's always trying to one-up the next person or the other pastor or the other church, it would, I think it would be, be for our good and God's glory for us to understand that we are competing against no other church in this community. We are competing against no other church in this community. You are competing against no other believer in this church or any other church. And I am competing against no other pastor it always makes me a little uncomfortable when I go to pastor's meetings and it just seems like, I don't know, I think it's a little bit of maybe an uncomfortable, I'm not sure what to talk about, so we'll talk about the weather kind of thing. Um, how many do you have in your church now? <laughs> um, and I, it's not that I hate the question, it's just that I want to make sure that the answer and the question, the question and the answer are for the right reasons, right? Um, 
I, I've come of the mindset that there are no small churches. Okay, some people come in, in into a church like ours and say, "Wow, small church!" I, and we've been in churches uh, before. Maybe you have too. Churches of thousands of people, and you look around and you go, "My massive church." God's church isn't about size; it's about the people. And um, I'm of the opinion that there are no small churches. I'm not too concerned, and maybe it bothers you, but I'm not too concerned about how many are here every Sunday. Um, I would love to see the pews filled, but I'm not going to stop preaching if they're not, okay? Um, if God brings more people and gives more people to hear the message, I am excited about that. I'm thrilled with that. But I'm just as excited to see a handful of people in the dead of winter on a really bad winter. And I don't mean bad Sunday, but I mean a weather, bad weather day, okay? Not a bad Sunday. A really bad weather Sunday, you know, when there's just a few people here because the roads are slippery. I'm just as thrilled to preach to just a handful of people because God has given us the, the responsibility to preach the truth and not to compete with such and such a church down the street, whoever, right? Or to compete with our neighboring believers. Be cautious about that. Be careful about that. So here come some who were with John saying, Hey, John, did you see what's going on? What are you going to do? Aren't you concerned about all those people who were once following your teaching and now they seem to be following his teaching? Note how John answers their concern. Here's the first part of his answer in verse 27. And what a, what a powerful reminder to each of us. John says in verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What's their concern? What's their concern when they come to John? Jesus is getting more attention than John. What's his answer? I love his answer. Look, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. A person doesn't get anything unless God gives it to him. A person only gets what God gives him. You only have what you have because God allows you to have it. That goes for all of us, doesn't it? That goes for your neighbor too. You know, sometimes you look at your neighbor and you go, oh man, he doesn't deserve to have something nice like that. How dare you think that, right? Because God's, God's Word makes it clear. Look, if he has it, God let him have it. And you're just hoping God will let him have it, right? Oh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? God is the perfect and righteous judge. If He wants your neighbor to have it, don't, don't begrudge your neighbor's good fortune, right? Just note that God is showing them some common grace for the time so that they will wake up and see Jesus Christ as the only answer and believe in Him. John's point is that any attention given him by others at any given point was to fulfill the role for which God had appointed him. You see, that goes for all of us. That goes for your neighbors too. Be careful that you don't allow yourself to think that you achieve great things without God's hand being in it. Whatever you've done, whatever you have achieved, be careful with thoughts like that, right? Whatever I've done, whatever I've achieved, I've done it in my own strength. Not so. This was even true of Christ, which is what Hebrews 5.5 5 makes clear when it says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed 
by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So John, in John 3.27, is reminding them here that it was by God's appointment that allowed him to point to Christ and for God's glory, not his own. It's by God's appointment that John was sent to herald, to be a herald, one who declared that Jesus is coming, the one in whom you must believe. And look at the second part of John's answer to their concern. Verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. It's like John is saying, Look, I made it clear to you from the beginning that I am not the Christ. Why are you concerned about more people following Him than me? Why are you upset that people are leaving me to listen to Him? That's what I wanted. I'm simply a messenger, says John. I'm a herald. I'm here to declare that Jesus is the Christ. It's like John is saying to his disciples, weren't you even listening to me? There's a reminder here for all who serve Christ, and I trust it's your desire to serve Christ with your life. But there's a reminder here for all who serve Christ. We're not serving to exalt ourselves. You realize that, right? That's not your desire, is it? You're not serving to exalt yourself. We can get get caught up with those kinds of thoughts at times. Boy, if I do this, then somebody will think you know good things about me. We all need to be careful with those kinds of thoughts. We we serve to exalt Christ. We don't serve to exalt self. We don't even serve to make a great name for this church. We serve to make a great name of Jesus Christ so that people will be saved from their sins. We serve to exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not serving to exalt ourselves over one another either. We're not competing against one another. We're serving together as the body of Christ. We're all a part of the same body, the church under the head, Christ. We serve not to make ourselves known, but we serve to make Christ known. Right there's a perfect place for an amen. Right? We serve to make Christ known. Do you agree with that? God's Word tells us that that's why we're gathered together. That's why He called us. That's why He chose us. That's why He makes us His own. So that we might exalt Jesus Christ and make Him known. Thirdly, John says this in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says it's his joy to be a member of the bridal party. He's not there to take the bride from the bridegroom. He's not there to get the attention at the wedding. He's there to rejoice with the other members of the bridal party at the arrival of the bridegroom to take his bride. And he's there pointing to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He makes this very clear when in verse 30 he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Listen, that's what our lives live for Christ should be all about him increasing, me decreasing, people seeing more of him and less of me. It doesn't mean they don't see you, but it means as you speak for Christ and speak of Christ and the change as he works in your life, 
If you speak of the truth of the gospel, they see less of what you've done and they see more of what He's done. And that's what our lives live for Christ should be all about. That ought to be the heartfelt desire of all who call themselves Christians, right? Christ followers. That Jesus would be magnified more and more as they seek to live for Christ and give Him the glory in everything. Now a question. Why? Why should Jesus increase and we decrease in the eyes of others? Why must Jesus get the glory and not His followers? Haven't great things happened in His followers' lives by coming to Christ? Why should Jesus get the glory and not His followers? Look at verse 31. Verse 31 is very helpful in answering that question. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John is saying that he couldn't be happier that people are going to Jesus because Jesus is above all. People should go to the one who is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. I love these bookends in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. You think he was trying to make a point here? Absolutely. He's first. He's supreme. He's superior. Jesus is of heaven. And here's, I think, what John was trying to get at. He's he's not limited to earthly wisdom like I am, says John. He's not limited in, in His earthly scope of wisdom and understanding. Jesus has heavenly knowledge. Why? Well, because He's God in human flesh. That's why. He comes from heaven. He's above all. He who comes from heaven has knowledge that it's that's unknown to those who are on earth. Now, I I would say this is not to contradict the fact that the Holy Spirit gives heavenly wisdom to those who are Christ's. When they feed upon the Word, when they're yielded to the Word and led by God's Word, God is good to say, ask for wisdom and I'll give it to you, right? And this is... This truly is heavenly wisdom because it's revealed by the Spirit to those who have the Spirit who are open to the Word and the Word is open before them, right? You feed on the Word and God is good to give you you heavenly insight that is not your own, that is not earthly wisdom. So I'm not suggesting that, that John is contradicting that biblical truth. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, compared to Jesus Christ and His heavenly knowledge, I'm a peon. I'm a moron. Compared to God, Jesus, God in human flesh, I know nothing. The quote, Schultz, right? Hogan's Heroes. You, know, Hogan's, you ever watch Hogan's Heroes? I know nothing, right? It's like Paul saying, I know nothing. <laughs> he says, I don't know anything. Compared to Jesus Christ. The one and only God in human flesh compared to Christ, my wisdom is completely limited. Now the Holy Spirit gives wisdom. Praise God. But compared to Jesus Christ, we don't know anything, do we? He goes further in verse 32 saying, He bears witness to what He has seen and heard. What's that? 
Jesus Christ bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ has witnessed and heard firsthand. Why? Because he comes from above, right? He has full knowledge of what he teaches. Again, we see a pointer here to the divinity of Christ. God the Son knows fully because he's been fully taught by God the Father. He has full knowledge of what he teaches and preaches because he knows all. Yet note that John says in verse 32, no one receives his testimony. What's going on with that? What's wrong with Jesus that no one receives his testimony? Let me just say here, there is nothing wrong with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. This is not a problem with Christ. It's a problem with mankind that John is pointing to. This is mankind's problem. It's a sin problem. And John isn't suggesting that literally no one believes in what Jesus preaches. It's that in comparison to those who do believe, it's the majority of people who don't believe. And that's a sobering reminder to us, isn't it? See, why, why this is true is made clear by Paul in Philippians 3.19 when speaking of unbelievers, he says, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he reminds believers from, from, uh, from what they had been saved, saying they once followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, that's what you once were, like the rest of mankind. So yes, and sadly, there are many who don't believe, and the Scriptures make it clear that Satan's pull is strong and is inviting but here's the good news. God is greater. God is far greater than anything Satan can do. Anything Satan offers, God is greater. And His promises are sure. Look at verse 33. Whoever receives His testimony sets His seal to this, that God is true. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the Spirit without measure. John continues to make much of Christ here. Pointing to Christ, taking people back to Christ, saying, look, you do need to follow him yourselves. Don't worry about them. They're doing what they should be doing. That's what you should be doing. He's making much of Christ, and he makes it very clear why it's far better to follow Christ than any man. It's like this, says John. When you believe in Christ, you have the inner assurance of the Spirit that what you hear from Christ is true. That what you hear from Christ is absolutely true. And the Spirit confirms for you that what Jesus says is truth. That's why the Spirit is such a gift to believers. Amen? The Spirit confirms for you as you take in the truth of God's Word that this is God's truth. You who believe in God the Son, listen, 
you have the witness of the of God the Spirit within, assuring you that you are indeed hearing the truth of God the Father. You believe in God the Son? You have God the Spirit giving you assurance that what you hear is from God the Father. And it is truth. And John says, all that Jesus speaks is with the final authority of God the Father. That's why he says in verse 35 that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He has authority. He is truth and He has authority. And this is why it is so important to see Jesus as the one supreme object of our worship and our obedience. Here's why you must see Jesus as the only way to life. And here's why you need to make it clear with the way you live and the way you speak and the way you witness for Jesus Christ that He is the only way to life. Here's why you must believe in Him if you would be born again. We see it in verse 36. It's a twofold reminder, one that's both hope-filled and sobering. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And we say, praise God. And then verse 36 says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then we say, oh God, draw sinners. So I ask again, when you point people to Christ, do they actually get to see the one who gives eternal life? Or do they only see you? May God help us. May God help each one of us to live every day to make Christ known. To magnify Christ in the eyes of unbelievers so that they, they will look to Christ and believe, and live. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, what precious truths Your Word holds. What precious truths we've marveled at this morning. We're challenged by. God, I pray that You would shape us and mold us in the likeness of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might make Him known and magnify Him more and more in our own lives as individual believers in the life of this body of Christ, the church. Oh God, I pray that You would help us to not serve with a spirit of rivalry or competitiveness or jealousness or conceit. God, help us to be humble as Christ is humble, as Christ is the ultimate example of humility. God, help us to humble ourselves first before Your Word and before Jesus Christ. And help us to humble ourselves before our fellow man that we might make you known. Make your son Jesus Christ known that they might see Jesus clearly living in and through us. That they might see him as the only way to eternal life. That they might believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. God, strengthen us 
for this as your church. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to be, help us to be so satisfied with you that our joy is complete in Jesus Christ and, and we make Jesus Christ known. And we'll thank you for your wisdom, for the guidance, and direction, and, and the indwelling presence and strength of, of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.